Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. Welcome to the show. My guests today are Dr. Lauren Phillips, Deputy Director for Inclusive Rural Development and Gender Equality at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and Dr. Anna Herforth, Senior Research Associate at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Principal Investigator of the Global Diet Quality Project. With Lauren and Anna, I'll be talking about what data tells us about women's experiences of food insecurity around the world. Lauren is joining us remotely from Rome, and Anna is joining us remotely from Boston. Lauren and Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'll start by talking to you, Lauren. Tell us what it is that you do with the FAO in Rome. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. What I do with the FAO is I work in a large division, which does socioeconomic research, advocacy, and policy work on issues around rural poverty eradication, rural transformation, and I think importantly for what we're discussing here today, gender equality and women's empowerment. And how long have you been with the FAO? About a year, actually. You're trained as a political economist. Tell us a little bit about how that informs the research that you're doing now with FAO. Yeah, I'm trained as an international political economist, and that means that I'm one of the few macro people on my team. We have a lot of microeconomists, and so we learn a lot from each other. But I think that that informs the way I work because I think about the context of politics and economics that are informing the trends that we're looking at when we're thinking about what's happening with food insecurity and poverty in developing countries. Great. Well, they're lucky to have you and to have the perspective that you bring on that. I'd like to start with what it is that we know about women's experience of food security or food insecurity, as the case may be, based on the latest edition of the flagship report that the UN puts out once a year. Those of us in the industry know it as the SOFI, but it stands for the State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report. It's a report that's put out by five UN agencies, the FAO, EFAD, UNICEF, World Health Organization, and the World Food Program once a year. Lauren, do you mind telling us just visiting what the latest Sophie told us about, about this topic? Yeah, so the latest Sophie has a lot of worrying trends about the increase in hunger and food insecurity globally. But the trend that is particularly of concern for the group that I'm working in has to do with the growing gap between both moderate and severe food insecurity between men and women. And I think, Caitlin, this is really being driven by the negative impact of COVID-19 on women's um, incomes, on their livelihood strategies, and on their ability to have enough food for themselves and for their families. So it's often said that women eat least and last in families. And this gap that we see is increasing since 2019, where it was around 2%. So say before the pandemic, around 2% more women were experiencing food insecurity. And now in 2021, the gap has grown to 4.5%. It's quite a significant increase. And it's not the same in every region of the world. In fact, it's growing in regions where maybe we wouldn't expect such a great, greater increase, like Latin America or the Middle East and North Africa, places where generally the level of food insecurity is lower than it would be in sub-Saharan Africa, but where the gap between men and women is growing faster. Tell us how it is that you are able to disaggregate these numbers by gender. 
So this food insecurity experience scale or the FIAS is a survey data that's done by Gallup World Polls. And so they ask a representative sample in a bunch of countries globally by individual people's experience of hunger or food insecurity. So they ask questions which are globally comparable about how many people are skipping meals or other kinds of indicators which would suggest that they're experiencing food insecurity. And because the data is nationally representative, global in its coverage, and individually disaggregated between men and women, we can make these kinds of estimates about the growing gap. Great. Thank you. And also just for a side note, it can also be disaggregated by location, rural, urban, by age and other factors, right? Correct. Yeah. Rural food insecurity has been growing. Urban food insecurity has been growing amongst the very poor at an even faster rate. Wow. So very useful tool for us. To, yes. How is it that you are certain that it's gender that determines the difference in experience in food insecurity between men and women and not some other factor related to income or something like that? So recently we ran a regression analysis that allowed us to see whether or not this difference that I just described between men and women's food insecurity was being driven by people's gender or if it was being driven by other types of characteristics. Because we know that women often may be poorer than men or have less income. They may live in poorer households, more remote areas. There could be all sorts of other reasons which are related to being a woman, but it's not just about being a woman. So we controlled for all of those things and we found that the gap was indeed attributable to just the difference between being a man and a woman, which means that these social norms about who eats and what they eat are really a strong determinant. And as well as the sort of gendered impact of COVID, which has had a much more dramatic impact on women's incomes and livelihood strategies than men globally, even in rural communities. In some of these regions that you mentioned in Latin America or Middle East, North Africa, or any region around the world, in practice, what might it look like when a, a woman is more food insecure than a man or has less access to nutritious food than a man does? I mean, we can see this even maybe in our own societies. Actually, there have been some really alarming statistics recently about people being food insecure, even in developed countries, right, because of the income losses that have been experienced during COVID-19. So I think what we can probably see is that you could have families where income is short or dropping and where there may only be enough food to have one meal a day instead of a usual two meal or three meal a day. And a woman might sacrifice some of her food for her children or for her husband or for an elderly person, someone else in her family. And that will increase her experience of food insecurity over that of men. Can you tell us a bit why this might be counterintuitive when you consider the different nutritional needs of women versus men, particularly women of reproductive age? Yeah. So women who are at reproductive age who are either pregnant or lactating need more calories per day than a, a woman who's not in those conditions. And so therefore the, the shortfall in the food that she's actually able to consume could be, have even more devastating consequences for her. The Sophie also gives us some disaggregated data by sex on things like anemia and shows a rising level of anemia since 2012 to around almost 30% of women are experiencing anemia or 570 million women. So these kind of micronutrient deficiencies also have a lot to do with what people eat, not just how much they eat. Looking ahead, Lauren, we are anticipating um, some important information to be released in spring 2023 through a revisitation of a report that the FAO released over 10 years ago, 2010 and 2011. It was a report on women in agriculture closing the gender gap for development. It was an edition of the SOFA the State of Food and Agriculture report, you'll be revisiting this topic of women in agriculture. What is it that you're looking at? And can you tell us just a, a little bit of a preview for that report? 
We're really quite excited about this report because that report that you mentioned that was published in 2010-2011, the status of women in agriculture, picked up on some trends that were ongoing about examining women's roles in agriculture and spurned a lot of research. And so what we've done is updated that data with all of the new information that has come out over the past 10 years so that we're able to say much more about the role of women more broadly in agri-food systems. So not just in agricultural production or in fisheries and forestry, but also in processing of foods, in the retail of foods, in the preparation, transport, et cetera, of foods. And we're doing quite a comprehensive update of all of the data and a review of the literature in order to say what has worked in the past 10 years at closing some of the gaps that that report found that were driving low productivity for women in agriculture and therefore dragging down food insecurity and GDP growth. So we're very excited about that and we're hoping to have it available for everybody in the spring. Turning now to Anna, Dr. Anna Herforth. Anna, thanks for joining us from Boston. Thank you. We were very excited in October 2022 to see the release of the first tranche of data under the Global Diet Quality Project. And I know you've been working on that for a long time. Tell us about the origins of the project. Yeah, thank you. We were very excited to finally get to the point of having the first tranche of data across 41 countries this year. Global Diet Quality Project began back in 2016. And it really came directly out of the experience that we're talking about today here, where Gallup had coordinated with FAO in collecting food insecurity experience scale. And that was a very important advance because Gallup is really the only truly global survey that covers countries, high income and low income and low income around the world. And so to have that data on food insecurity was a game changer. But then The conversation was Andy Zeppa had worked on that at Gallup and started asking the question, well, okay, so now we see whether the bowl is full or empty, but what's in the bowl? We don't have clarity across countries on what people are eating. And we came together at that point to start collaborating on an approach forward. And the project now is a collaboration between Gallup and Harvard and Gain, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. It really came out of this awareness of, astonishingly, we don't have a monitoring system for understanding what people are eating and the diet quality that's associated with huge public health impact around the world. It's probably the biggest public health impact, diet quality on malnutrition in all its forms and non-communicable disease. So that is where where it initiated um, six years ago, and then it took several years to build up the approach and be able to start collecting data across countries. And so now we are at that point. And tell us, generally speaking, why is dietary diversity important? So dietary diversity, it's a broad concept that generally sort of relates to diet quality because it's an insurance policy. When people eat diverse diets coming from diverse food groups, as well as diverse food items, they're more likely to be covering their nutrient needs. And in fact, that concept of dietary diversity was the basis for the indicator, the minimum dietary diversity for women, which applies to women age 15 to 49 in low and middle income countries, which is an indicator of achieving micronutrient adequacy in the diet because dietary diversity is related to nutrient intake. But dietary diversity itself is not the whole story on diet quality. So in the Global Diet Quality Project, we expand beyond indicators of only women's dietary diversity to cover 
food group adequacy in the whole population and also protection of health against non-communicable diseases and specific risk factors in diets for non-communicable diseases as well. Okay, thank you. Let's talk about quantification of diet quality. Considering the different cuisines that people consume around the world, how do you quantify this? That was a really tricky part in developing a tool that could be simple and feasible and cross-culturally valid that could be applied around the world. And the way that it works, it's what we've developed is called the Diet Quality Questionnaire, also known as the DQQ. And it's a five-minute questionnaire where respondents are asked about what they ate in the previous day or night based on questions about food items that are common in each country. So the questionnaire covers the same 29 universal food groups across countries so that we we can use those same food groups to come up to calculate universally meaningful indicators such as dietary diversity and indicators of protection of health against NCDs. But the questions themselves are adapted country by country. So that's how we've come up with something that's cross-culturally valid, yet also specifically adapted to each context. And we were able to do that by doing well over now 800 interviews with key informants around the world. So in each country, really getting expertise from people in the country who knew what's most common, how is it called, how should we ask it in the questionnaire. We definitely could not have done this you know, as a small group alone. It took a global network of people to build all of these tools to be able to measure diet across countries. I think it's one of the most interesting aspects of this work is how exactly how you came to quantify this. Maybe that's the topic for another conversation, but can you give us an example of what some of those questions looked like in different countries? Um, sure. So you might say in, in the United States, you might ask about staple grain foods by saying, yesterday, did you consume bread, rice, or pasta? And you'll capture almost everyone who had a staple grain with those items. It may be a few more. So in the United States, where you might say, did you consume bread, rice or pasta to capture staple grain consumption? If you went, say, to Kenya instead, you might say, did you consume ugali, chapati, uh, rice or um, some other specific grain dishes to that country. Okay, good. Thank you. The first report under the Global Diet Quality Project was released just last month. What did you find? First of all, it is the first publicly available data set where we can look at the MDDW indicator, the Minimum Dietary Diversity for Women, which has been something that many organizations have been interested in collecting, and there hasn't been a data source for that yet. So we have the data for women's dietary diversity around the world. We find that in a lot of countries, there are many women who are are not consuming diets that would be associated with meeting micronutrient needs. And so country by country, we can see where the baseline is right now and be able to use the same tool to track that over time. We also find that the majority of people in most countries, even in the few high income countries we were able to cover in this round, do not consume diets that would even minimally adhere to dietary guidelines. And what I mean by that is that they don't consume any amount of all of the recommended food groups in a day. So say you have you know five recommended food groups, there may be recommended amounts, but if you consume no amount of any of the food groups, then definitely people are not consuming diets that, that would be meeting recommendations. And then we also see some very interesting results on some of the biggest risk factors and foods related to the risk factors for non-communicable disease, like diets that are too high in sugar, salt, and fat and saturated fat 
processed meats. So we we actually see some big gender differences there. And in general, what we see is in many countries, men tend to be consuming more of those ultra-processed items that are associated with higher risk factors for NCDs, in particular sugar-sweetened beverages. And that's one of the things this data set also does is allow looking at diet data by gender. A lot of times the focus is on women's diet quality because of what you know we see in many countries and many times of women eating last and least and that being very important to track. But to get a true sense of disparities, we have to be looking at both men and women. And so Gallup data enables us to do that. And we see that if we had only measured women, we really wouldn't be getting a full picture of what the whole population is eating because in some of these food groups, we see big gender differences. What are the factors that contribute to one consuming a higher quality diet? So I think that the data allows us to start looking at that question. These data describe what people are eating, but there's many, many factors that would affect what people end up consuming from the cost of food to cultural patterns to other factors affecting access and just tastes and preferences and marketing. So there's so many factors affecting food choice that there's a whole world of research to unpack that. But we can't even really start that research agenda without data on what people are eating. Great. Knowing what they're eating in the first place. What is next for the Global Diet Quality Project? The intent is really to produce the tools and build the data to enable global monitoring of diet quality because it's such an important factor in public health and nutrition and also environmental sustainability. In 2021, 41 countries were covered. By 2024, that number will rise to above 80. And the intention is really to cover all countries and be able to have a feasible way of monitoring diet quality indicators and tracking them over time. Part of that next step is to bring in more of the high-income countries as well, where, of course, diet quality is healthy and unhealthy in different ways around the world. And there's no country that's immune from poor quality diets or the health impacts of diet challenges and related to uh, potentially food security as well. One thing that was an interesting finding in the data this year is that for people who had enough money for food, who reported having enough money for food in low and middle income countries, what we saw is that they consumed both more healthy foods and also more of the ultra processed types of foods that were risky for health impacts. We only had a few high income countries and one of them was the United States. And we saw a different pattern where having enough money for food was associated with more healthy foods, but it wasn't associated with a difference in whether people were consuming the risk factor types of uh, food. So we would like to see those differences across income levels in future waves of data. I think that Anna's data is super interesting and it's a very good compliment. We're interested in both of these things, right? As she said, like who has the bowl in front of them and what's inside of the bowl. So this is a super important way to consider the intersection between all sorts of factors like gender, but also income, as she was just mentioning, and healthy, adequate diets. I would agree with Lauren that it would be really important and meaningful to look at the connections between food access and food consumption and how dietary quality is shifting over time. You know, as we have shocks such as what we experienced in the pandemic and inflation happening, how is that changing both what people are able to access, but then what are they actually eating? What kinds of substitutions are happening in the diet that might be 
having a strong impact on health and disparities. Well, the work that both of you are doing is so important to increasing policymakers' understanding about the experiences of food insecurity around the world and the determinants of food insecurity. And so I really look forward to staying in touch with both of you and revisiting these conversations with both of you. So thanks very much for making time to join the show today. Thank you for having me, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.